Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 97, He Rules the Roost. This episode contains part two of my interview with complementarian Dr. Jim Hamilton for his response to the egalitarianism of Dr. Philip Payne. I don't have my good podcasting microphone right now, so I won't spend any more time on my monologue except to tell you that the reason I don't have my microphone is because I left it at work and wanted to publish this episode before I left with my family to Yellowstone. That's right, we leave tomorrow morning from here in the Puget Sound. We'll be staying in a hotel in Missoula Sunday night to arrive at our KOA in West Yellowstone sometime Monday midday, and we'll be returning home on Thursday. I went to Yellowstone as a teenager with my dad. My wife went with her sister a couple of years ago. But we haven't been together, and our three kids haven't been, so we're all very much looking forward to the trip. And I'm particularly looking forward to the break from work. Please pray for us, for safe travel, for a relaxing break from work and from the cares of everyday life. Pray that we'd be safe from bears and other dangerous wildlife. Uh, Pray that this trip will bring us closer together as a family. And if it just so happens that you'll be anywhere in the West Yellowstone area in the next few days, shoot me an email and maybe we can say hi. Anyway, as I said, we leave tomorrow, and although I forgot my good mic at work, I wanted to get this episode out uh, because I won't be back for almost a week. Uh, so you'll have to forgive me for the poor quality of this audio and the quality of the outro, but fortunately the audio quality of the interview itself remains good, so let's go ahead and return to it right now. He wears the pants, but she picks them out. He thinks he's king, but she wears the crown. She pulls the trigger, he rules the roost, she rules the rooster. Let's move on to the next challenge, though. Uh, One of the challenges that had seemed strongest to me uh, is Paul's identification of man as the head or kephale uh, of the woman in 1 Corinthians 11. You just mentioned that a moment ago, uh, and he does it as well as in in Ephesians 5.23. And and it seems to suggest that men in the church and at home have authority over women, that that they're the head. Uh, As you know, Payne responded by explaining that it is very unlikely that Paul used the Greek word kephale in those passages to refer to a head in that sense of of carrying authority, but rather that he used it in the sense of being a source or origin. Uh, For example, he said that when the Jewish translators of the Septuagint came upon text in which the, the Hebrew word for head means authority, very rarely did they translate it using the Greek kephale, uh, and that's just one of many reasons that Payne gives for understanding Paul to be saying that the, main, uh, that the man is the source of the woman rather than her authority. What do you make of this argument? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very sad to say this. Um, I, I take no pleasure in saying this, but I think that Payne is simply an unreliable guide on this point. And, and I say that because, once again, we're, we're up against this word study fallacy. Um, and, and, and honestly, I don't know how Payne can make these claims. Um, I, so what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to quote a line from Wayne Grudem, and then I'll take you to just a couple of examples. Perfect. Um, Wayne Grudem says this on page 595 of his book, Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth. Quote, regarding head as applied metaphorically to persons. To my knowledge, no one has yet produced one text 
in ancient Greek literature from the 8th century BC to the 4th century AD where a person is called the kephale, head of another person or group and that person is not the one in authority over that other person or group. So what Grudem is claiming is that every instance of someone being metaphorically referred to as the head in every one of these instances that person is also in authority now you know a statement like that in order to validate it we would really have to go and look at all the evidence hmm. um, I, what I want to do though is just look at a couple of instances in Paul where I think it is impossible to claim that the word head means source and has no connotation of also authority. So the first one, um, and, and this is perhaps the most relevant because it, it's in Ephesians and, and, uh, that's, um, where Ephesians 5 is, where, um, where, uh, Christ is, is the head of the church. So Ephesians chapter 1, though, before we get to Ephesians 5, Ephesians 1, I'm gonna start reading in verse 20, uh, Paul is referring to the power um, used in verse 19 to raise Christ from the dead. And then he says in verse 20 that this power he also worked in Christ. Well, um, there it is, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And I would just observe this spatial metaphor of Christ being above all rule and authority and power and dominion is an authority statement. And then above every name that is named. Again, an authority statement, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And, verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I see no way to suggest that when Paul says that God gave Christ as head over all things to the church in verse 22. He only means source and not authority. Mm. I, I think that's an impossible. And, and if, if someone, if someone makes that case, I think they're only making it because they want to make it. They, they're, they're so committed to that view that no matter what the evidence indicates, that's the view they're going to take. It, it does. I'll let you go on in a second, but I do just want to say I, I think what you're saying does kind of make sense. I mean, he, he just said he put all things in subjection under his feet, and uh, I think many of us would recognize that as being a, a, a position of authority that he's given over all things. So head would seem naturally to imply that. Uh, so yeah, I can see what you're saying. Right. Uh, one other example: Colossians chapter one. Um, you know, this great passage Paul is, is the image of the invisible God. Then in verse. Um, 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, um, again, I think, I think it, it's, it's asinine to suggest that Paul only has source and not also authority in view when, when, when he says that Christ is the head of the church there in Colossians. And then if we go into the context um, in Ephesians 5, which may, you may want to postpone that to another, um, perhaps the next, I don't know if that's the next question about uh, Ephesians 5. Uh, no, it was part of this question. Then, Oh, I guess it is. It's uh, 
Uh, it's about mutual submission and subjection. Uh, so if, if you want to, if you want me to move on to that question so that, well, if that, let's, oh, I guess, let me say one more thing about the Septuagint translation of yeah. uh, head texts. Um, you know, I, I just looked at one of these. I just, I just looked at Psalm 110 where, um, the Hebrew has rosh and uh, the, the, or the Hebrew term is rosh in Psalm 110, which is translated as, um, uh, kephalas, which is the plural of kephale there in, in Psalm 110. And, um, uh, in, in, in Psalm 110, English translate, English translations, like the ESV, for instance, all, all, all English translations do this. Uh, I'm thinking of Psalm 110, verse 6. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter, and then the Hebrew has rosh over the wide earth. And the ESV renders the word rosh for head, chiefs. Yeah. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Um, that indicates, and this is consistent with the word rosh in the Hebrew Bible, uh, that the, the word head is commonly used in the Hebrew Bible to speak of one who's in authority, someone who's in charge, someone who's the head. So I think even if you could make the case from broader Greek usage that usually in Greek, head is not authority, it's only source, I think it would still be plausible that Paul, influenced by the Hebrew Bible, where the word rosh is used for head, might bring that connotation into his usage of the Greek language. Uh, but you can't make the case, as Grudem has demonstrated, decisively. You can, he can't find, Grudem can't find a single instance from the 8th century BC to the 4th century AD in all of Greek literature where head is only source and not also authority. So I think what he says about the Septuagint is just not, not reliable there. Well, I'll definitely let our listeners, uh, you know, do the, do some of that research as to Grudem's claim, and, and hopefully they'll get back to me with their findings. In in uh, in Payne's defense, I do want to say, however, that his claim about the Septuagint was not that Roche is never translated kephale uh, to mean authority, but but rather that it's done so a very a very tiny minority of the time that that the Hebrew word for head is used to mean authority. Typically, he would argue they used a different Greek word, but it seems to me that. If, even if that's true, and I don't know that it is, I'd like to go look at the other, you know, hundred or so uses of of Roche that are translated differently by the Septuagint translators. Uh, it, even if that's the case, it would still suggest that there is a, um, you know, uh, there is a precedent for well, for sometimes at least translating Roche as Kefalei, right? Where I think Payne is not sensitive in his application of word studies to interpretation. So with, with words, you have to, you have to fit a word to its context. And you, you have to understand the meaning of a word in context. And, and so I can imagine an English word that, that has multiple senses and that can be used in multiple ways. And, uh, if I determine that one particular sense is the dominant use of that word, that doesn't mean when I come to a context that's calling Christ the head of the body, well, it's got the predominant meaning, and it mm -hmm. doesn't have the authority mean, even if there are authority statements in the context. I, I think that's just, that's, that's, again, it's partaking of a word study fallacy. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on then to, uh, dig a little deeper in Ephesians 5. Um, one thing that struck me, and, and, and 
maybe I missed something previously or maybe I missed something after going back and checking out what he said, was that when I asked Payne about Paul's use of kephale in Ephesians 5.23, he pointed out that Paul's command that women be subject to their husbands in verse 22 appears to be in the context of mutual subjection or submission. Verse 21, for example, according to Payne, uses a reflexive verb to say that we should be subject to one another, and then verse 22 lacks the verb altogether, suggesting that while while it is true that wives should be subject to their husbands, the reverse is true as well. Is Payne right about that? Well, here again, Payne has, he's hovering over the text, and then he dips down in and he picks out an exegetical detail that he thinks is going to help, help his case, and then he disregards the rest of the context. So, so actually, Paul's statements here start back in verse 18, where he says, don't be drunk with wine, that's debauchery, be filled with the Spirit. And then what he's doing is he's telling you how to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, so forth, giving thanks, and then submitting to one another. And he's exactly right. The verb is in verse 21, submitting to one another. Everybody acknowledges this. Nobody disputes it. And then what he does in, in verse 22 and following is he actually gives three sets of relationships where you're to have this, this so-called mutual submission. So he's got wives and husbands and that in, in verses 22 through 33, and then children and parents in verses 6, 1 through 4, and then slaves and masters in 6, 5 through 9. And um, now, you know, I think we could make observations that would be relevant, that would, that would mean, or that would say, what Paul wants children to do is obey and honor their parents, and what he wants fathers to do is not provoke their children to anger. And, and that's how they go about mutually submitting to one another. So the fathers don't submit to their children by obeying them, but by being good fathers and not provoking them. We could say similar things about the relationships between slaves and masters that Paul envisions. But with, with husbands and wives, I think what Paul is doing is he's sketching out what, what kind of mutual submission he wants. And so for um, the wives... He wants them to submit to their husbands. And for the husbands, they submit not in the exact same way that the wives do, but by laying down their lives for their wives. Mm. So he draws, Paul draws an analogy. When you work through the context, he draws an analogy between the relationship between Christ and the church and the relationship between husbands and wives. And he explicitly says in verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, if pain is right, if pain is right that um, there's mutual submission and it's it's full equal then we would actually have to say that in this analogy, Paul also envisions the church submitting to Christ, as in, as in the way that wives are called to submit to their husbands. And, you know, I think that's, that's again, asinine. Well, hold on a second. You mean, you mean the reverse. You think it's asinine to suggest that, the, that Christ should subject, should submit to the church the way that wives submit to their husbands, right? I think okay. it's asinine to suggest that Christ would submit to the church in the way that wives are called to submit to their husbands. However, and I think this is just testament to how desperate the egalitarians are, there has recently appeared a book uh, entitled 
as as Christ submits to the church. So the guy's arguing exactly what I'm saying. But I, I just don't think that's the way the relationships between Christ and the church work. I think that uh, Christ is the head of the church. He's the Lord of the church. His, he's the king. His word rules. What he says goes. Uh, he, he, he's Christ. He's God. He's in charge. And, and, um, I think that the way that he submits, if there's mutual submission, is by laying down his life. That's what he does to submit. And the way that husbands are called to submit is to lay down their lives, to, to die to themselves, to sacrifice themselves and their own interests and their own, own desires to benefit their wives spiritually. That's what Christ did for the church. So, so if I might summarize the response, and I, 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 what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, you know, but, but just to summarize what you said, if, if, to make sure my listeners catch what you've said, uh, the claim that, that this passage teaches mutual submission as a objection to our view, it necessarily implies that the mutual submission is identical in nature. Whereas in the context, both in terms of Christ and the church, in terms of slaves and their masters, in terms of, uh, fathers and their children, is not identical mutual submission. Mission, but it is mutual submission. It's just of a different kind, one authoritatively and the other sacrificially. Would that be a fair way to put it? Yes, and I think we could say again, um, you know, with, with fathers and children, we've got ontological equality, functional subordination. With slaves and masters, I think Paul would affirm ontological equality, but in, these, in this relationship, slaves, you need to submit to your masters. And then with husbands and wives, you know, ontological equality, functional subordination. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next one then. Uh, when I asked him about 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 13, where Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, Payne responded by saying that the original Greek word authenteo is more properly interpreted assume authority, or as the King James Version renders it, usurp authority, and that it doesn't prohibit women from exercising authority that is rightfully theirs, like that of Priscilla, for example, or, you know, maybe he would argue, uh, Junia and other people that we're going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, uh, Philip said that Paul is instructing Timothy to stamp out a local problem in which deceived women were assuming or usurping an authority to teach that they didn't have with disastrous results. Uh, under more normal circumstances, Payne said, Paul would have no problem with men and women who weren't wrapped up in dangerous pagan teachings, uh, standing up and teaching with authority. So, so how do you respond to this argument that Paul is not prohibiting women from having authority at all, but rather that he is prohibiting women in a particular historical context from usurping or assuming authority that wasn't properly theirs? Yeah, let's start with the problem um, that Paul is it, or, or the, the 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 issue of false teaching in the in the pastoral epistles, and then work back to the use of authenteo. Okay. So um, Paul Paul can say if he wants to that the reason that he's giving an instruction is because of the false teachers. So for instance, in uh, Titus chapter one, he says beginning in verse five, "This is why I left you in Crete, so that you can uh, and." put what remained in order, and then he goes on down through verse 9. And then the explanation as to why he's just given this this instruction in, for, in Titus 1, 5 through 9 comes in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Okay, so Paul gives this instruction to Titus in Titus 1, 5 through 9. Titus, I left you in Crete so that you can put overseers who are... Um, who are elders uh, in, in, into the churches, and the reason I'm doing this is because of those false teachers that are running around. That's not what Paul does in 1 Timothy 2. He doesn't, in 
First Timothy 2, he says, he doesn't say, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man because these women are adopting false teachers or, or, or false teaching or because these women are, are propagating heresy or something like that. He says, uh, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, let's observe what Paul appeals to there. He doesn't appeal to a post-fall, post-sinful state. He appeals to a pre-fall, Eden, created order kind of situation. He appeals to God's original, very good creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, the egalitarians, you know, they'll, they'll often say, well, that's no argument. That, what kind of an argument is that? And at that point, I think they're arguing not against complementarians, but against Paul. Paul seems to see that as significant, that Adam was formed first, then Eve. And I think it, if we're to submit ourselves to the scriptures, if Paul sees it as significant, we ought to see it as significant. I think we're helped by what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 11 when he when he says something very similar. He says almost exactly the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11 when he writes, explaining this whole head covering issue. He says, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, I think this is a very sophisticated interpretation of Genesis. So in Genesis 2, 15, uh, we read that God put the man, or Adam, into the garden to work it and keep it. That's why God put Adam in the garden. And then a few verses later, beginning in verse 18 and following, um, Paul says that God put the man in the gar- or God made the woman to help the man. So there we've got some insight into the significance of the order of creation. Mm-hmm. God man in the garden to work it and keep it he put the woman in the garden not to work it and keep it to help the man do that and and these are statements that that moses makes to explain the reason for which god put man and woman in the reasons for which god put man and woman into the garden um so when we move back from that to the the issue of what the greek word authenteo means um, Andreas Kustenberger has done a, a, an exhaustive study of the grammatical construction that is used here when Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And he has shown definitively that if teach is positive, exercise authority is going to be Positive. Okay, so what that means is, um, if if Paul is not talking about um, um, a, a negative kind of teaching, then he's not talking about a negative kind of exercising of authority. The the two go together because of the the grammatical construction that is used, and Paul is consistent in the pastoral epistles using the word teach in a positive way. When he wants to talk about inappropriate teaching, he always calls it false teaching or or uh, teaching of 
um, wrong, wrong doctrine, unsound doctrine. So, so here Paul doesn't use um, the term that he uses elsewhere in the pastorals for false teaching. He uses the term that he uses for good and right teaching. And so that means that if he's talking about good and right teaching, he's talking about good and right exercise of authority. And he doesn't permit either. That, that's Okay, but let me let me press you just a tiny bit further though, and just ask you if you're aware of anywhere where that word authenteo is used to mean to simply have authority uh, in the way that complementarians seem to argue is the case here. Yeah, the um, we're both Payne and I are both working from the same authoritative study of the word authenteo. He alluded to it in his interview with you. It's from this book edited by Andreas J. Kostenberger and Thomas R. Schreiner. Uh, called Women in the Church. It's now in its, in its second edition. It's an analysis and application of 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. And chapter 2 in this book is called An Important Word out in 1 Timothy 2, 12 by Henry Scott Baldwin. And Payne appeals to Baldwin's conclusion, excuse me, that in certain contexts, that word can mean assume authority in a negative way. And here, you know, this is another thing that Payne often does. When a writer says something that Payne likes, he'll pick that up and and use it out of context. So Baldwin is not arguing that that's what authentic means in this context. Baldwin is just saying there are places where the word can mean something like assume authority. And then the question is, what does it mean in this context? And that's where... I think if, if, if you're going to allow the grammar to determine the meaning, if you're going to allow Paul's usage of these terms in this context to determine what this statement means in this context, uh, this is why I say the teaching is a positive thing and the exercise of authority is, is a positive thing. So I'm not denying that, that we could look at texts in Greek literature where the word authenteo might refer to a negative use of authority. Um, that, that may be the case. What I am saying is that doesn't necessarily mean um, that this instance of the word is a negative authority, a, a power kind of a thing. Okay, I understand. Well, <clears throat> let's uh, let's let's move on to something that you said in an email to me, and that you also have mentioned in your uh, in your blog, which is that the Mosaic Law prescribed only male priests, and that Jesus named no females as apostles. When I asked Payne about this, he said that priest was the only position that women didn't fill in the Old Testament, and that the reason that only men were appointed the role of priest is probably to avoid uh, resembling the female priests uh, rampant in surrounding pagan religions. And what he said was that Jesus didn't name any female apostles because of the impropriety. Imp- propriety of being in close, intimate situations with women, uh, and that if we followed the complementarian reasoning, we would have to exclude Gentiles and slaves from ministry since his apostles were all free Jews. What do you make of this explanation? Well, uh, I'm going to take this point by point, okay? So Payne said that priest was the only position women didn't fill in the Old Testament. There weren't any female kings. Hmm. And when we look at the prophets, okay, we can we can find a female prophet here and there. Um, we can, Deborah was a prophetess. Okay, fine. Um, that, that's a, that's an exception. And, and we can find uh, Hannah authoring, um, 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. That's a radical exception. So, you know, 
the, the overwhelming preponderance of of people um, exercising the role of prophet recorded in the Old Testament is that they're males, and uh, it's only uh, males who are going to be king, and it's only males who are going to be um, priests. And and I think that what that does is it says you know when we when we look at the burden of the evidence, there seems to be a default toward males being an authority. And then if we look at the instance of Deborah in Judges 4 and 5, I think what we want to do is we want to ask ourselves, how do we interpret narrative? And with narrative, um, we're, we're dealing with description, not prescription. So in the narrative of Judges, this is not a prescription of the way things are supposed to be in Israel. This is a description of the way things were. And there was a female prophet and... I would also observe that in the book of Judges, everything is upside down and everything is wrong and Israel is radically disobedient. And, you know, in that narrative of Judges, I think Deborah evidences what I would call complementarian sensibilities. What I mean is that when she calls Barak to go and fight the Lord's battles, when Barak says to her, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Her response in Judges uh, chapter 4 is to say, okay, I'll go with you, but you're not going to get the glory. A woman is going to get the glory. She says in Judges chapter 4, verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And I think she means to shame Barak by that statement. And, and I think that's reflecting this view that women aren't supposed to prevail over men. Hmm. It's supposed to be a man. It's supposed to be Barak who's supposed to lead the battle. And Barak, if you're not going to lead the battle, you're not going to get the glory. And a woman's going to get the glory. And Barak, you should have been courageous and you should have taken the lead because that was your role. So, so I, do, I don't think that, um, you can appeal to the Old Testament for a precedent for women being in authority. Um, so that that's the first part. The priest was the only position that women didn't fill in the Old Testament. I think that's just an inaccurate and unhelpful statement that doesn't really reflect the reality of what the Old Testament shows. And then the, he says that uh, the, the reason only men were appointed the role of priest is probably to avoid resembling the female priests in fertility. Uh, he says this also in his book, and in the in the margin of his book, I've written next to that comment. Well, there were also male uh, <laughs> shrine prostitutes at those fertility cults. So, so I don't think that is a. I don't think that helps his case because you've also got um, uh, the presence of those male shrine prostitutes, and then um, Jesus only uh, naming male apostles because uh, it would be Im- improper for women. Um, you know, I think this is that's that's actually part of the complementarian thing. You know, there there are places where it's appropriate for men to be, and there there are places where it's appropriate for men to be, and sometimes those two things aren't the same thing. And and so, uh, well, hold on, let me let me interrupt for just a second because when I spoke of impropriety, and when I think he speaks of impropriety, what he means is. The, the, how improper it would be for Jesus and women to be in close, intimate situations, private situations, which wouldn't necessarily uh, communicate anything about the, the, the whether or not women should be in authoritative roles. Yeah, and I, and I think that you know that could be part of it, 
But I think it's also the case, and this is worth observing. Uh, so what what I'm saying is, yes, that's true, and um, and yes, there are times when it's a pro when it's better to have only males present. Th- those are realities, um, and and in part, you know, th- this is broader than pain because the whole the whole um, feminist movement wants to sever your sex, which is what you're created with, from your your gender identity. Mm-hmm. So this broader than pain, and this goes farther than pain wants to go, but the broader culture wants to say, your gender identity is a set of roles that you've learned. It's, it's a set of responses and a set of ways of thinking about yourself that you've learned from the culture, and it's unrelated to the biological equipment that you were born with. And and pe- some people believe that today, and that's why they're you know they're confused as to whether they should let the, they should allow their their young child who's male but who thinks he's a girl what should i do with this should i let him act like a girl should i go ahead and have an op- operation and give him hormone shots and let him grow up as a girl they're confused because they're buying the culture's line that sex and gender identity don't go together and what i'm saying is no yes sex and gender identity do go together and there are places when it's appropriate only to have males. But um, aside from that, I would just reject that explanation as being the only explanation. And I would say that's part of it, but that's not all. It would have been easy. And, and I think there are places in the Gospels where we can see that there are women traveling around with Jesus, particularly in the Gospel of Luke. There are women traveling around with Jesus who are providing for him out of their wealth, their their they're um, helping him have food. They're, they're in various ways assisting the ministry. And I think it would have been easy for Jesus to say, I'm going to name one of you as one or, or three or four or six of you as m- one of my authoritative representatives. And he doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. He only men. And, and when you put that with the fact that there were only priests in Israel, and when you put that particularly with the explicit prohibition for women to teach or exercise authority over men, it, it, it becomes a big reality than if you just take it in isolation and, and dismiss it as something that's merely to avoid the reproach of being alone with a woman. Okay. Well, let me ask you one more question about his responses to my challenges then. First uh, Timothy 3.2 says that the overseer must be the husband of one wife. And many translations render the text using male words like man and he and so forth, when according to Payne, the original Greek doesn't speak to maleness at all. He said, if I recall correctly, that even some notable complementarians have said that this phrase, perhaps better rendered one woman man, rules out polygamists from the office of overseer, but not women. Uh, he said that the original Greek encourages whoever, to aspire to the office of overseer, and he holds culpable translators who some 12 times render gender-neutral language in a way that suggests Paul is speaking specifically to males. Do you think that Payne has a point about this passage? No, uh, in part because there are, though there are not masculine pronouns in the passage, there are um, mas- the, the, the words are masculine forms. So the word tits is a masculine. And, and then the various other words used through the passage are Masculine, but I would also again observe from the context that Paul says over in First Timothy five seventeen um, that um, the the uh, elder who rules well is to be accorded double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 
And those are the two things, ruling well and preaching and teaching, that he has said that women may not do over men in 1 Timothy 2.12. So I, I think, you know, if, if, you, if you look at the letter of Timothy as a whole, and you see him prohibit women from preaching and teaching, not because women are adopting false teaching, but because of this created order thing, this Garden of Eden setting, and then you see him talk about the elders who are preaching and teaching and ruling well, uh, and then you see him talk about um, the elders who aspire to the office in masculine forms, this overall picture emerges of only men being elders. And then you can combine that with considerations from the wider context of the New Testament, like uh, Acts 20, where Paul calls the elders from the church in Ephesus, and when he warns them about false teachers arising in Ephesus, he says explicitly, I know that um, men from among yourselves will arise teaching false doctrine. Mm. And he, he uses the word men there. And, and, and that indicates that um, the elders in Ephesus are men, and um, the false teachers who are going to arise out of the elders in Ephesus are also going to be male false teachers. So, so I don't think that, Paul, that uh, Payne's case works at all. Okay. I, I'm not a Greek scholar, but, but I do, when you say tis, for example, uh, whoever, as, as Payne put it, is masculine, is there a feminine equivalent of tis? Well, there's a neuter equivalent. Oh, okay. Um, and, and, and here, you know, we're up against uh, a broader consideration about the Greek language where masculine forms can be used to encompass both males and females. And honestly, I think that that points to the way that that females are often viewed as being sort of under the wings of the men. You know, you, you get this in the Old Testament, too, where they talk only about the sons of Israel, B'nai Yisrael, and that's often translated as the children of Israel. It's translated that way today because of our gender sensitivity. Uh, and I, I actually think that um, that uh, older English usage was shaped more by the way that that uh, the Old Testament does this and the New Testament does this and the way that more literal English translations used to do this. So it used to be, and, and you still find this in some places. I mean, Flannery, Con- Flannery O'Connor, the uh, fic- Southern fiction writer from the 30s and 40s, um, she, in, her, in her essays in Mystery and Manners, she's talking about the Southern fiction writer and she's referring to him everywhere as he. Well, that's what she is. She's a Southern fiction writer. She's using this generic he to refer to anyone, and I think that reflects actually biblical usage and uh, our culture because of because of this feminist impulse um, has has rejected that and moved away from that. And so, if you read about appropriate usage today, they'll say people can understand generic he, but often they'll default to a plural or they'll say he and she or he or she or something like that. They're trying to accommodate for these this this altered situation, which is not a result of study of the Bible. It's a result of uh, progress made by the feminists. Mm. And I don't think it's demeaning to women. And Flannery O'Connor didn't think it was demeaning. <laughs> Use generic key. 
Okay. Well, you've really given us a lot to think about as we consider these egalitarian responses to uh, complementarian objections. But I want to switch gears now and briefly discuss Paine's positive case. He, uh, he began to lay a foundation by arguing that many, although not all, of Paul's contemporary Greeks held a low view of women and that almost universally the Jewish view of women was fairly low as well. But, he said, Paul's teacher Gamaliel was a notable exception who taught a very high view of women, if Paine is right. Wouldn't Paul have been likely to follow his teacher's lead, or, or, or perhaps would you say that Paul does indeed very, uh, teach a very high view of women, but that it's a mistake to assume that what that means is that he did not teach a complementarian view of authority within equality? Yes, I, I mean, I think that um, you're right. It, it doesn't appear that Paul ag- agreed with Gamaliel about Jesus. So, so Paul could obviously part ways with Gamaliel. I mean, I hope that Gamaliel repented and believed in Jesus, but we don't have any evidence that he did. Uh, so if if Paul's going to part with Gamaliel on that, there, there's no reason to think. And, and I don't think you can make the case, actually, that Gamaliel would have advocated women teaching and exercising authority in the Jewish communities. So even if you could show, which, you know, one of those one of those statements that Payne quoted Gamaliel as saying in his interview with you, I sounded kind of sexist, honestly. You know, he, something about him praising the beauty of even a Gentile. Well, you know, that that sounds maybe a little bit prejudiced and mm. maybe a little bit um, chauvinistic if he's, if he's really focusing on this person merely for her externals. I, and I don't think that we want to say that that's the way that Paul thought about women. Well, and I guess my point was not so much whether he parted ways from Gamaliel, but rather... Is it possible that Paul's view of women is indeed very high relative to his uh, surrounding Jewish culture, um, but that a high view of women doesn't necessarily entail uh, an egalitarian view of authority? I think that's exactly right. And actually, when you look at when you when you look at First Timothy two twelve and thirteen, um, the two things that that Paul permits women to do in verse eleven actually have corresponding things in verse 12. So he says in verse 11 of 1 Timothy 2, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then he, and then he matches those two things, learning with submissiveness, with, with, um, paired elements in verse 12, but she's not to teach or exercise authority over men. So that, it's a very sophisticated, um, statement. And I think it does reflect um, the view that women are ontologically equal with men, and yet they are fun- functionally subordinate to them. All right, well, let, let's talk briefly about Paine's argument that Paul identifies several women uh, as being what he calls ministry leaders. Let's talk about Phoebe first. Paul, uh, Paine says that Paul calls Phoebe a diakonos, a, a prostatis, and he says that these words communicate ministry leadership. What do you make of that? Well, the first part, I, I think that Paul did allow for women to be deacons. So with Romans 16.1, where Phoebe is called a, a deacon, a diakonos, uh, I think we could walk through 1 Timothy 3 and see that when he when he moves to the women likewise, I actually disagree with the ESV, which says uh, their wives also. I think it ought to be translated merely the women likewise, and I think he's talking about women deacons. And I would just observe that um, there's no... Instruction that women need, uh, that, that deacons, whether women or men, need to be able to teach as there is with elders. And there's no indication that the deacons have any authority. They're just servants. So I have no problem with Phoebe being a servant, a diakonos. I, I think 
you can have if what I would say is uh, in a church today, if you have biblical elders and deacons, that is, if you have uh, men who are elders who are leading and teaching, if they're the ones who are exercising authority and teaching the church, uh, then you can have women deacons. If you've got a situation, however, where you've got unbiblical offices and your deacons are actually sort of your de facto elder board, you shouldn't have women deacons because they're going to be exercising uh, church-wide authority. Um, so I have no problem with that. And then on the word prostatus, you know, this is the only word, uh, I'm sorry, it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. And um, BDAG, the authoritative Greek lexicon, um, says on this on this word, it's in bold, a woman in a supportive role. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, to appeal to a word that occurs one time in, in the New Testament, I, I just don't think that case is very strong at all. Okay. How about uh, uh, Priscilla, though? Payne pointed out that when Paul names uh, Priscilla and Aquila as being the instructors of Apollos, he names Priscilla first, and that he calls her and other women fellow workers in ministry. What do you make of this argument? Well, um, I would observe that um, um, when Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos aside, there's a plural verb used there. So the two of them are doing it together. And um, um, they they taught him in the way of God. Again, it's it's a it's a plural verb. So they're doing this together. And I would observe that this looks a lot more like uh, a couple taking someone aside and having a kind of one on uh, married couple on an individual kind of conversation to edify and exhort and uh, spur him on to love and good deeds. That's not. That's not any indication that Priscilla stood up in the pulpit uh, or, or whatever they used in front of the gathered congregation and gave regular, established, authoritative uh, instruction in the scriptures, you know, on a week by week or however. I think they probably met weekly on the Lord's Day. You see what I'm saying? There's no indication that she was a regular teacher of the whole congregation, mm. nor is there any indication that the fact that Paul names her first is in fact the indication she took the lead in the congregation in the conversation. I mean, you know, my I don't I don't know that you could establish it. Um, I don't know that there would be any way to establish that the 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 order of the names definitely means that she took the lead in the conversation. I, I just don't think that you can you can make that strong a case. And even if she did, well, we're de- we're dealing with a conversation. We're not dealing with authoritative teaching in the church on an ongoing basis. Okay, but what about this phrase uh, or, or word fellow workers that, he, that Paul uses to speak of her and some other women? Does that, is that significant in this debate? Uh, I think, I think it, as long as we have Paul uh, saying, wives, submit to your husbands, and him saying, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, um, its only significance is to observe that he views the women as making a valid contribution that the church needs. And, and he doesn't appear to think that they're being excluded or discriminated against. Um, so, so I think that I think that they are um, fellow workers in the way that women, in the way that it's appropriate for women to be fellow workers. Okay, and then this last uh, this last figure, Junia, uh, Paul calls her an apostle. Um, is there anything significant about that in this debate? Well, it depends on what you think the word apostle means. What you make of the fact that Junia is called an apostle? 
depends on what you make of the apostles in general. So I take the view that there there are capital A apostles and then there are little a apostles. And the capital A apostles, in my view, are those um, who saw the risen Christ and were commissioned by him. And I think that, that in the New Testament, we have evidence that there is a closed circle of men who saw the risen Christ and were commissioned by him, sent by him to go and represent him. So you've got the 12 minus Judas plus Matthias, and then you've got, it appears that both Barnabas and Paul are referred to this way in Acts 14. And then James seems to be listed as an apostle in 1 Corinthians 15. And then um, perhaps also Jude. So, you know, when you add it up, you've got 15, maybe 16 men. But it's a, it, it's, it's a, it's a closed set. That, that's all the capital A apostles the church is going to get. And then the little a apostles are not referred to as apostles of uh, Jesus, apostles of Christ. They're apostles of the churches. Mm. And so Paul first refers, for instance, in uh, Philippians 2, he's talking to the church in, Philipp- in Philippi, and he says to them, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow so- soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. And that word messenger there is your apostle. And then there's also um, use of the word this way in like 2 Corinthians 8. And and what it boils down to is I think that um, these apostles, the, the, the lowercase apostles, little a apostles, are sent by the churches for some particular reason. And I think that that's the role that Junia plays. And, and given what Paul says, says elsewhere, and given the the overwhelming preponderance of male leadership in the New and Old Testament uh, and in the history of, the, of Christianity, I think that it, we're on good, solid ground to say that whatever her role included as an apostle, Junia's role, uh, it, it did not include teaching men and exercising authority over them. And now, I would also say that um, some of the more radical, and I don't, I don't know, I can't remember from Payne's book whether he makes this kind of insinuation or not, but some of the more radical feminists at times insinuate that actually there's this big cover-up strategy. And actually, Junia was part of that closed set. You know, she was one of the 12. Hmm. And there's a reason that she's not listed in the gospel narratives. What, what do you think that reason is? That she wasn't and, a capital A apostle. <laughs> oh, you're saying what, what his art, what, what some of these feminists argument is. That there's this, this sort of yeah. misogynist anti-woman, uh, cover up of this important role that women actually played in the earliest church and even, uh, with Jesus. And I, I think that that's, that, that's very dangerous and it's, it's, um, impugning the motives of those who wrote the gospels and passed them down. And I think that's, that's, uh, that's unhealthy. Okay, well, let me ask you to respond then to one last element of Payne's positive case, uh, and then we'll start to wrap up. Payne argues that Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, cannot legitimately be restricted only to spiritual equality, but that context demands that it be a response at least to inequality of other sorts as well, including ministry. What's your response to this argument from Galatians 3.28? Well, again, I think he has taken... He's hovered above the text, and then he's dipped down in and grabbed an exegetical detail that that supports his case, 
and he's he's ignored the rest of the context. So uh, I think what Paul is actually doing is is um, building on what he has said as back in Galatians three sixteen, where there he had said, "Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring." It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So there Paul is playing on the fact that the Hebrew word for seed, which is rendered here offspring, um, is what's known as a collective singular. It's like our word for those animals that we refer to as deer. Mm. It's even like our our word for seed. So we can refer to one deer or we can refer to a whole herd of deer. We can refer to one seed or we can refer to a whole bag of seed. The singular is also used when a plural is in view. But here, uh, Paul, play, he, he sort of plays on this and he says, you, you, basically, you notice that word's in the singular and it's, it's saying that the promises were made to the seed who is Christ. And then what Paul is going to do down in 3.26 to 29 is say, you're all one in Christ. So beginning in verse 26, actually, Galatians 3.26, he says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, notice what he's done. He said, in Christ Jesus. So there's, there's union with Christ here. And then he said, you're all sons of God. And that's assuming the priority of sonship. So he's actually elevating women in Christ to the status of sons. You know, now you have part of the inheritance. Now you're, you're, you're one of those who, who's not like a daughter who's going to be married off. You're, you're carrying the status of sonship and you're going to receive the inheritance. And then he goes on, uh, to say there in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So you're baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ, and now what Paul had said of himself in Galatians 2.20 is true of you. Uh, you're crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God. And, and so this is the context in which he says in verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are we could render this literally of Christ, or, or as the ESV has it, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the promise is only to Christ, and if by faith and, and by means of baptism you've been united to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and, and the promise is for you. So, I, you know, I, I don't see from context how this demands anything about ministry roles. Um, I think that that um, Paul's view is, yeah, there's neither slave nor free, but he's still going to go on and tell the slaves, submit to your masters. And, um, yeah, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but he's still going to go on in Romans 11 and say uh, that, in, I think what he's saying in Romans 11 is that on the day that Christ returns, um, all Israel will be saved. And he's contrasting uh, the way that the nation of Israel is this cultivated olive tree, and then the Gentiles have been grafted into that olive tree. And then likewise, just as he's done with free and slave and Jew and Gentile, he's still going to go on in later letters and say, wives, submit to your husbands. And I don't permit women to teach or exercise authority 
over a man. So, yes, one in Christ, ontological equality, equal standing before God in the gospel. By faith, everyone has the same status and the same access to God in Christ by the Spirit. However, uh, these roles remain. All right, well, we could spend hours more discussing this, to be sure, uh, but I've already taken up a lot of your time, so let's begin to finish things up. As, as a sort of parting message, if you will, to my listeners, how important do you think it is that we fall down on the right side of this debate? Beyond the obvious uh, importance of simply affirming what the Bible says, what is the danger of egalitarianism if it's not the biblical view? Well, I think it poses a danger to biblical authority, and it poses a danger in particular um, to how we think of our, our sex, male and female, and our gender identities. And, and this is very relevant today as, as gay marriage is becoming more and more of an issue. And I would observe that the appeal that Paul makes in Romans 1 regarding homosexuality and, and it being wrong is an appeal to nature. He says that this is contrary to nature. And, and so I think that's an appeal to the created order. And, and when he makes an appeal or, or when he gives an, an explanation as to why he doesn't allow women to teach or exercise authority in the church, again, in 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15, he makes an appeal to the created order. So I think he argues for gender roles and for, uh, and, and against homosexuality on the same basis. And and so I think it's no surprise that the first churches to ordain women as pastors have also been the first churches to ordain unrepentant practicing homosexuals as pastors. And and I think the gospel is at stake here. And 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 the reason I say that is because Paul appeals in Ephesians 5 to the way that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. So if you foul up marriage, you've fouled up your proclamation of the gospel. And, and if we're, if Christ is not going to be Lord, if he's not going to have the authority to say who is permitted to teach, who is permitted to exercise authority, he's not going to have the authority to say who you can sleep with or what kind of what kind of sins you need to repent of, or, or even what sin is. So, so you know, you might respond to me by saying, well, you're, a, you're making an, an argument from a slippery slope. And I would respond, yeah, and the slope is slippery. <laughs> okay, well, if you could speak personally to Dr. Payne right now, and, and it's quite possible that he'll hear this, what would you say to him? I would say to him, you know, I, I'm, I'm really impressed by... Um, your devotion to the scriptures and, and I'm, I'm really grateful for all of the privileges that you've been given and the opportunities that you've had. Please don't waste them. Don't, don't waste them on this, this futile case. Please turn away from your rejection of what Paul teaches in 1 Timothy 2 and what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, and what Paul says in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, please embrace the teaching of Scripture and, and leave this failed project and, and, and avoid the displeasure of the Lord Jesus. 
avoid having to explain to Paul in the age to come why you so radically sought and, and devotedly sought to distort his message. Please, please repent. What resources would you recommend to me and my listeners if we want to learn more about the uh, complementary position and its response to arguments like that of pain? Well, there, there are a lot of resources. Um, I'm going to mention three books and then a website. Uh, the first book I would mention is called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a Response to Evangelical Feminism, edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. And there are just fabulous articles and chapters in this, in this um, book. The whole case is laid out for the Bible's teaching about manhood and womanhood. Um, that's the first book. The second book that I would mention, I've already alluded to, is by Wayne Grudem. It's called Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth. And I think, actually, that um, people would be surprised by what Grudem says in this book. On pages 100 and, and uh, 101, he's got a list of areas of public visibility or recognition, and then the subtitle is, Which Activity Should Be Restricted to Men? And then he lists out, you know, what what typically, uh, what kinds of roles people typically play in churches and uh, what he thinks women can be involved in legitimately. And I think it's it's remarkable what he would uh, allow women to do. I think people would be surprised by what he would allow for women. I think any question you have about this whole debate uh, will will be addressed by this book. It, it's, it's an analysis of more than 100 disputed questions, and Grudem does a, a phenomenal job. And then the third book that I would mention is the one I mentioned earlier, edited by Andreas J. Kostenberger and Tasha Schreier, called Women in the Church. It's in its second edition. It's an analysis and application of 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. Uh, and then, so those are the three books I would mention. Uh, the website I would mention is um, the, the website for the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's cbmw.org. If you go to cbmw.org, you can find links there to the Journal for Biblical Womanhood and Womanhood. I'm not sure if it's still there, but uh, the, the whole text of that book I mentioned, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, used to be available online for free at cbmw.org. So a lot of other things I can do, but I think those are the most important. And where can my listeners go to find your website and get in contact with you? Sure. Thanks for that, Chris. <clears throat> my website is at jimhamilton.info. That's jimhamilton.info. And if you click on the Articles and Essays tab there, you can find PDFs to almost every article I've had published. And then also there's a books page, which has links to the books that I've written. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jim Hamilton. Dr. Jim Hamilton on Twitter. And I'd be... On the on the website at jimhamilton.info, if you click the About tab, you can find my email address there. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it, Jim. And thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's a, it's a delight to be here. It's an honor to serve the Lord. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to interact on these issues, and I really hope that this is a help to people. And, again, I think that what we should do is is keep reading the Bible and keep trying to understand it and keep trying to to get what it means in context and allow it to speak and allow it to be authoritative in our lives. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Well, there you have it. I hope you found the interview as enjoyable as I did, and I hope it challenges you to take a closer look at the scriptures. Uh, next week, after I get back from vacation, I'll publish the first half of my interview with Steve Jeffrey on post-millennialism. Until then...